This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with basketball coach Tony Miller. He discusses his work around individual development and the importance of opposition to make challenges game realistic, his dual role as an academic and practitioner, and how this helps him on the basketball court, as well as his content creation and the way he creates drills to support players remotely. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. So Tony, first of all, I know I said this off air, but apologies about the uh, delay there. Had some technical issues, like the X Factor, but we're here now, which is all good. How are things your end? All good? Gone well. Perfect. So um, as I, I said to you there, we kind of caught up a little bit. I think you've got a lot, your hands in a lot of different parts. I think really exciting as a as a host of a podcast, be able to talk to someone who's got loads of different avenues which you can discuss. It's quite wide ranging. But for people that maybe don't know you, don't know your background, don't know what you're involved with, do you just want to give, I guess, a brief overview of some of the projects you're involved with um, and how you've ended up there? Yeah, so my primary job here is a university professor and I've been here. This is my 15th year doing that. Um, it's in the, I, I oversee the sport management program, started that about eight years ago and then uh, have just passed that off to someone else, but I still teach within the department. And then I am responsible for and started about three years ago uh, our sport administration and coaching master's program. And so I oversee kind of the development of, of those and some of the primary courses for that and facilitate that as well. So coaching and sport is really where my passion is and, and helping train the next generation of coaches. I really enjoy that as well and do that at the the master's level and then also at the undergraduate level and then i'm also the assistant men's basketball coach for the university here bob jones university we're in greenville south carolina and we are currently a, a provisional division three school so trying to kind of work our way into that and um, then you also mentioned the podcast i, I do the podcast and uh, people say man how do you have time for all of that and uh, i have i've been fortunate to really kind of have overlapping responsibilities and duties and uh, one complements the other, and uh, I always wanted to be a teacher who didn't just uh, have book knowledge, but really experienced the things that I was teaching, and so uh, aspects of sport marketing and coaching, and um, it's been very helpful for me to be able to get those real-life experiences and be able to then walk into the classroom and say, not just like, this is what the book says, but this is what I experienced, and, you know, working with sponsorships, like, this is how you secure a sponsorship. Uh, I remember last year I walked into a class and said, I actually last night just had a conversation with a sponsor and was able to talk about. And so it, it allows me to kind of like bring world life experience into the classroom. And then also the experience that I have, knowledge that I have from the classroom, I'm able to kind of take it then into the gym and kind of use it on my players and practice and work through it, that kind of thing. So like I said, just been very fortunate to kind of live in the world of sports and um, the administration of sports and sport marketing. and um, had classroom experience and the practical experience that uh, has has proved to be invaluable for me personally. Perfect. So I guess the first question is, what drew you to sports in the first place? Why was that the uh, the place where you wanted to have a impact and, and career moving forward? Yeah, I've played youth sports and all the sports really, and 
um, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed that and had great experiences and wasn't necessarily always on great teams, uh, but just had really great experiences participating in youth sports and worked that way up through the, the secondary level. And then um, college sports, actually the college that I'm at now is where I attended and we didn't have intercollegiate sports at the time. And so, you know, I, I played some sports here, but really thought I was going to go on and become a, like a PE teacher at a school, at a secondary school and uh, other plans kind of just timing of faculty members retiring here and was asked to stay on. And then, like I said, kind of over the years that progressed to is when the field of fields of exercise science and which is more of like the science side of things, which my undergraduate degree had had some of that in it. But then also the kind of the administration side of it and the sport management side of it had a little bit of that as well. And one of the stipulations was if I was going to continue to teach here, then I need to go on and get additional degrees in that. So um, I, I had a master's degree in secondary education, which was more for like teaching classroom at the high school level. And then when I stayed on, I ended up getting my doctorate in sport management and had an emphasis in leadership and concentration and coaching. And so, like I said, kind of like all of those passions and interests, kind of just one thing kind of led to the other and, and led me to the position that I'm in right now. And in terms of, um, I guess, your skill set being quite vast, you know, being able to you know utilize yourself in a variety of different roles and the university being able to do the same how did you develop develop that skill set um you know how did you learn how to have your sponsorship hat on to your marketing hat on to your coaching hat on because they're again quite wide ranging and it takes a lot of skills to be able to do all those things yeah i'm very fortunate i had, had parents that were both teachers and uh, have, have just enjoyed learning and the learning process and i I think that's something that has served me well, especially as a coach and a teacher, is that uh, mindset of just being a continual learner. And uh, part of it was, again, just kind of like interests, passions of some of those other things, but been very fortunate for those all to kind of like diverge together. And it's very uh, somewhat ironic, maybe, and also unique that I'm in a job teaching at a university where a lot of this day and age, like I, I read even over the weekend, Education all the way down to some degree has, has been questioned and uh, to the degree of, of what is happening in the colleges and universities and is it is it worth it to be able to go and, and that kind of thing. And I, I have been very fortunate to have a very worthwhile educational experience that encouraged me to continue to learn. But then also kind of developing in me that love of learning um, and then trying to just be like inquisitive, uh, just being inquisitive about other things. Um, I, I hear people, some people say, like, don't go to college. You can go get knowledge other places. And that's true. You, you can get a lot of knowledge other places. But the experiences that I had and the other things that I learned were very valuable to me in addition to that knowledge that I got from the university. And then being able to continue on after that. I, a lot of the things that I am doing with the podcast and with marketing, like I learned in a very informal way as well. And so I'm a testament to both sides of it, that uh, going to school going to educate going into education teaching and education but then also learning outside of it as well and whether that's creating graphics or editing podcasts or <clears throat> you know putting together some sort of sponsorship proposal like i learned to do all of those outside of a school setting and so i i i am for learning in general uh, but like i said if if people are going to come to my classroom and learn i want them to get things that they can apply immediately 
to real life settings and I want to position them in, in places where they can continue to learn and grow in that knowledge and in that practical um, practical side of, of things so that they can have success <clears throat> outside of the classroom as well. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but hopefully. hopefully yeah, no, 100%. I guess what it does lead me on to is you mentioned a lot around, you know, that thirst for knowledge or that personal development side of both you having it but also want to impart that on on the, the people that you work with so from your experience what what are some of the strategies or tactics to get individuals one engulfed and engaged within their learning and two trying to give them ownership around that of going actually you know this is your journey there's going to be things you're going to want to learn I'm going to give you a push in the right direction, but ultimately it comes down to you. What type of strategies have you used around that? Yeah, I think it starts with making sure that we're not just <clears throat> gaining additional knowledge for the sake of gaining additional knowledge. When I can position it in a way that they understand that this is to improve you or um, <clears throat> to help you grow personally, or this will you know, position you better for the job that you have or that you want to have, or this will help you achieve those goals that you want to have. Um, that's where it changes to now we're not just gaining knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge, but I have got to continue to improve in these areas or learn how to do this or whatever it is, whatever they're trying to achieve, <clears throat> because it will help me achieve my goals and coming alongside them and, and saying to them, I'm here to help you achieve those goals. That's where you see others really buy into it, whether that's on the basketball court or in the classroom. When they, when the, when the student sees that I'm there to come alongside and help you reach those goals, that's when they're going to, that's when they're going to listen to me. That's when they're going to, you know, take my advice. That's where they're going to come to me for questions. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that in large part has been, that has been some of the reason for the disconnect because <clears throat> it's this, I'm here to give you knowledge. Now take all of my expertise. Now you go out and do it. And, what I think is really what I'm here to do, which is, like I said, I'm here to give you knowledge and to give you examples and to show you, but how you take that information and then use it as you attempt to achieve your own personal goals. Um, that's where I think that the success of what we're going to do with that information and how I'm now going to be able to have success in my own personal life, like that's where it's really going to happen. And how do you go around, I guess, challenging individuals from, you know, previous experiences of them getting somewhere maybe via a different technique or different strategy um, and pointing them and saying, well, this might help you more longer term. So if you use this in a sporting example, for so if, you, if you're talking about a player that has a particular crossover or whatever that they're using on the basketball court, but you actually think, you know, the higher up the levels they go, that's going to become less and less effective so actually there's a small variation we can do that's going to allow you to maybe have increased success but they're, they're probably going to kick back and go actually i've got to where i am because of this being effective so how do you manage that i guess uh challenging discourse around um their development and they want to make that next step and understanding that you're not trying to hinder that you are trying to help yeah, one of the things that's been super helpful is just the more experience that you have, the more than I can go back and say, look at this person or look what we accomplished or look what this group accomplished when they did whatever, you know, whatever the example is. But, you know, the sports brings a very, especially the team sports aspect, <clears throat> brings a very unique component to things because 
now it's <coughs> excuse me now it's how can i help this person not only achieve their goals but also work to the to help the group achieve its goals and it's one thing for me to say to somebody like if the group achieves its goals then you'll achieve your your goals for somebody who maybe hasn't had that experience in the past or hasn't had that personally happen to them like they may be a little hesitant to buy into that um but you know, this is why film is a big part of what we do, talking about things that we've accomplished in the past when people have done this. Um, you know, we use a phrase a lot like people and our players don't know what they don't know. And so just helping them understand they, they may not be aware that, you know, that new move or having this type of, of goal within our half court offense will help them achieve their own personal goals or will help them become, you know, a great example of that is the, the system of offense that we use. It, it generates a lot of scoring opportunities, especially sc shooting scoring opportunities, um, and has turned average shooters into above average shooters and above average shooters into great shooters, not necessarily because, you know, their, their technique is better, but because of the types of shots that it generates. Well, because of the type of system that we play, it's not very common at the high school level. It's not very um, known with the players that we use. And so when they come into our system, I can say to them, like, our system will help you become a great shooter. You need to play within the system, though. That's one thing. But actually them buying into that and doing that, I'm going to have to show them film. I'm going to have to show them how it works, um, how, how it works at, at, at practice. I'm going to have to show them how the components of our system will help them become a better shooter. And uh, that, that takes a lot of trust. It takes time. Um, but I do think it helps, again, when we have a goal in mind and we help them see individually how help achieving those personal goals will help the team have achieve its goals and vice versa. And so obviously you guys on an annual basis will kind of refresh your playing pool because naturally where people graduate and then you're bringing new players in. So do you have like a bulk of sessions that you will do with them at the start of the season to go over some key principles? And if yes, what are some of the key principles that you'll work through in, in this offense? Yeah, so for we have, for instance, this year, we've got five new players coming in. But we also have a very good pool of upperclassmen as well who have been in the system before, several of them who have only been in it for one or two years, but they have seen the success that we've been able to have when we play a certain way. And so um, within our offensive system are certain concepts and certain actions that everybody's going to have to know and understand. And because we play more of a conceptual offense, it really is contingent on, you know, where does my teammate move with the ball? Okay, that determines then when I move next or where I move next. And so we've allowed them to have freedom, but also put in several different like constraints. But there's always an overarching um, goal of maintaining, for instance, within our offense, maintaining space and creating big advantages, small advantages that will then result in teammates being open, open shots being taken, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, coach just asked me this the other day, like, how do you go about teaching something like that? It really is introducing individual concepts, but then getting as quickly as possible to playing. And because of the nature of the sport, I mean, it's very, it has the potential to be very chaotic. And so it's like, how can I create this controlled chaos um, while still actually achieving what we want to 
to achieve. And that takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of time. And what I found is it, it takes a very um, intentional effort on my part to become a better teacher of the game. Because if I can't communicate these somewhat obscure concepts to my players, <clears throat> they're not going to really be able to understand what we're trying to achieve. So um, that that may not sound like a lot, but you know, if we want to dive into it, we can. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing for me there is that you mentioned a little bit obscure concepts. I guess what's obscure about them and what led the head coach and yourself or collaboratively you guys to make a decision to go down this route? Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it is it is simple, but it may to somebody watching it because we're not calling plays, um, but it's not something that's like unique. We didn't come up with it. It hasn't been, a, it, it really follows more of a, the concepts that like a, even a soccer team would play. I mean, soccer is, is very um, reliant, good soccer at the highest level is reliant on good spacing, good ball movement and good player movement. And everybody will say that that's coaching basketball. People have said that for years. But what does that look like out on the court, especially at the college level? So much of creating good ball movement, player movement and spacing have really been in the coach's hands of drawing up the best play. And we go out and execute a play and hopefully it gets us a good shot. And then we come down the court and we drop another good play. But really in the type of offense that we run, there's no plays. There's not plays being called. Um, there, it, it really is concepts that as we run down the floor, we begin each possession in a certain alignment. And then based off where the defense is playing, um, based off of where the ball is passed, then there are subsequent player movements that will help generate additional space on the floor for the ball handler so that that ball handler can attack that space and either create an advantage for himself or draw an additional defender, which then creates an open advantage, a big advantage for a teammate. And if the defense is good enough to rotate and try to take away that advantage, how can we continue to move the ball or move players to either maintain that advantage or then create a new advantage that will eventually open a shot for us? And so, you know, there are some very intentional, like if the ball is passed here, then a player does run here. But it's not a play as in like one or two actions, quick hitters, that hopefully we get a good shot. And if we don't get a good shot, then we need to call another play. So there at no point in the in the course of a, a single possession will the team come down and we'll call a play. And if that doesn't work, then we call another play. Everything is a coordinated movement based off of where the ball is thrown or a player moves to keep space so that then we can create those advantages and then hopefully create a scoring opportunity. So I'm conscious of not let, not trying to get you to divulge all your secrets here. Sure. But could you give us like a really common maybe pattern that you see offensively from you, your guys and maybe talk through it with some technical jargon um, in terms of, you know, if it's a high pick and roll or, or what that looks like. So when the point guard gets the ball, what's his initial thought as he's coming up the the court, what's he surveying, what's he looking for, and then maybe what are the role of the individuals around that? Because I just think it would give a nice uh, picture for people that are listening, both from a basketball context, if they do basketball, but also for me as someone that's made on the outside, I can begin to picture how the space 
and movement is created and then maybe utilize that in my own head for what it might look like on a, a soccer field or rugby field or something like that. Sure. I actually just did this um, with, with one of our players to help them kind of explain kind of what they're supposed to be looking up. And so, for instance, when our team gets the ball and we start now to transition to offense, um, alignment, as I just mentioned, was very important. So as we come down the floor, we want to already be aligned in particular spots. And based off of what your position is, we'll determine where you go and start and stand in that alignment. So if we're, for instance, um, a lot of teams here in the U.S. play either like a five out that are playing this way, play a five out or they'll play a four out one in which means for the four out one in, you have your one big post player, one of the post players running right to the front of the rim. And at some point they will, uh, those that know the rules of basketball, you can't sit in the middle of the paint for more than three seconds, but they'll run to the rim and then hang around those blocks for the short corners. And then I've got two players in the deep corners. And then I've got what we call the slots, which are essentially like one step off the, the uh, lane line extended. And so as you come down the floor, if I'm the, the point guard, I, I am looking to see, is there an opportunity for me to go score the basketball? Because there is already created space because of how we start the alignment that to my left, there is a single gap, which I don't want to drive into typically because there is usually a defender standing in that gap. Or to my right, there's a double gap that exists because if we go from the slot to the wing to the corner, I just listed two spots so slot to wing is one gap gap to corner is another one there is space there for me to drive it and create an advantage um, if the defense is playing me you know well and i can't exploit that space then i'm looking to see can i pass it ahead either over the top to maybe my big man who's running down the floor and is in front of their defender <clears throat> or can i throw it up the sideline to an open teammate ahead of me um, if the defense is taking away both of those, then we'll what we call we cross the street. So we cross over the middle third of the court and look again to see it. Can I throw the ball ahead to an open teammate? And if none of those options are there, then we typically will set what we call a drag screen. So that last player who inbounded the ball is coming now behind trailing and setting a, a screen in transition. <clears throat> and screens are nothing more than are, are opportunities to create an advantage. And I didn't define this at the beginning, but an advantage is when my defender is no longer in between me and the basket. So if I can get the defender on my hip, then we have a small advantage. If I can blow by them and they're behind me now, we, that's a big advantage. Um, we talk about big advantages. If there's a player open on the perimeter and nobody's guarding them, that's a big advantage. Um, and so with a ball in a ball screen situation, what are you trying to accomplish? I'm trying to go screen for the ball handler so that his defender is no longer between him and the bat basket. You are attempting to create a small advantage. <clears throat> well, when you do that, defenses will attempt to then neutralize that action by maybe switching or um, hedging, or if they don't think that you can shoot, they'll drop into drop coverage. Um, so anyways, we come off the screen, and when you come off that screen, there's now a triple gap that you can go drive. And so essentially what we're trying to do is just constantly create space and advantage opportunities so that we can either go score the basketball or draw help from somewhere and then pitch to that where help came from 
And what we say is we get the dominoes falling. In other words, okay, the, the defender now has to rotate and then that guy has to rotate for that guy. And we're hoping somewhere along the line, somebody either forgets to rotate or doesn't close out well. And we have an advantage to score the basketball. Yeah, I think it's a really nice picture that you're painting there. And I'm thinking about it from a Man City perspective in, in soccer. You actually see it quite a lot with, you know, those wide players deciding when to cut maybe towards the goal using a basketball term there, or maybe when the 10 goes into the post in that space, or when do they come out and recycle the ball, etc. So I guess on the recycling side, how do you teach patience for your players within that? Because again, you're, you're taking on a lot of information. Obviously, you guys have a shot clock, which you have to adhere to, which you don't necessarily need to in a football perspective. But how do you teach them to actually, you know, if it's not on, we're not going to force it feel free to come out and we'll recycle, reset and go again. Or, you know, by you being patient, you're going to move a domino and hopefully at some point, maybe in the fifth or sixth phase, someone will be half a step late or someone will fall asleep and that will create the, the opening for us. Yeah, so uh, some that follow U.S. basketball, college basketball may know the, the, know the name John Wooden. So John Wooden once, uh, one of his quotes was, don't mistake activity for achievement. And uh, that's one of the difficult things. I'll go back and, you know, the illustration that you gave even with, with football, with soccer, is one of the knocks I remember when the MLS started. And one of the knocks that the people when that first started was it was basically boom ball, which was we boom it over the top and you saw this mass of players and who really whoever was the fastest was the one that got it because it was just kicked over the top. And then it was kicked over the top. And there was kind of like this you turn on a Premier League game and like there's beautiful spacing and they let the ball do the work. And that's one of the things if I can communicate to my players, it's not necessarily always movement of similar to soccer. I don't, the, I, we don't all have to be running at the ball to create a scoring opportunity. We don't always have to be moving. There is this intentional, there, there should be these intentional overarching um, goals that again, direct what we're doing. So, I can't, for instance, maintain space if you, Michael, as you drive the basketball, I start randomly cutting because what's going to result is I'm going to get in the way, my defender's going to get it in the way, and whatever space existed no longer exists because now there's four of us in that space where if I would have stood still or maybe even take two steps to the left or two steps to the right, depending on what the situation is, I would have maintained or even created better space for you that would have forced my defender to maybe go help, which would, for instance, have led to a longer closeout. So you would have pitched me the ball and I would have had an even more open shot. And that's where I said, going back to the film and helping them understand that these overarching principles of spacing and drawing two defenders and then effective, efficient ball movement. That's one other thing that um, I think in all of sports, Coaches for a long time have communicated this idea of like unselfishness. And we really don't even use the term selfish or unselfish with our players because I, I don't necessarily feel that it's a, <clears throat> at least with the players, and I, I'm fortunate a lot, you know, we recruit our players and that kind of thing, but I, I don't ever feel that I really have like selfish players. I have players who don't recognize when to pass the ball and when not to. And it can actually be detrimental for me to be unselfish sometimes. Like, what if I go to drive the basketball and you, I end up going by you as you're my defender, Michael, and I go by you to score it. 
and there's a teammate open in the corner, but I have a wide open layup and I throw the ball to you, that that doesn't necessarily make it a good play. Like the good play would have been for me to go and score it. Now, if your teammate had come off of you and come and guarded me and now my teammate is open in the corner and I don't pass it to him. Yeah, that could be selfishness, but in my opinion, like the way I'm describing that is that's a bad read. That's a bad decision. And so there's, there's really this, this again, this goal of like making good decisions within our offense to create advantages, which is why you've heard me say the word advantage like a hundred times already. Like that, I want, I want them to be thinking about that and how we go about doing that. We go about doing that through spacing and ball movement and the correct player movement. Um, I want them to be thinking about those goals rather than things like selfishness, unselfishness, you know, uh, you know, running a, a Spain action or running a stagger screen. Like those are all means to an end. Those are not running a good play or being selfish or unselfish. That's not, that's not what this is about. And so there'll be certain players, I guess, within your system and, and nationwide that, um, are higher performing than others. Um, and they might have a particular matchup or they might just be, you get it in every aspect, just better than the people that they're playing against. How do you manage that between the decision making side, but then also allowing them to take over a game? I look at someone like Kevin Durant. Actually, he is an advantage by himself in the fact that he's however tall, athletic, really, really good ball handling, um, all those different skills that you could possibly have from an attacking point of view. He's got that. So how do you manage that between, yeah, we want to create our system and we want you to be involved in the system, but we also identify the fact that you are very skilled by yourself and there's going to be an element to this where, you know, we're going to allow you to flourish as an individual because we think actually you can't be guarded by anyone on that team. I'm probably in the, the minority as a college basketball coach in the U.S. who really enjoys NBA basketball. I hear there's a lot of one-on-one and, you know, it's not really a team game. I don't see it that way. I see it described in what I just said to you and what you just beautifully said was those guys are advantage creators on their own. Like if, if this doesn't mean we don't take advantage of the examples you gave, like mismatches, like just because a defender is in between the basket and the guy that's guarding him doesn't mean there's not an advantage there. If it's Joel Embiid being guarded by Chris Paul, I don't care if Chris Paul's in between Joel Embiid in the post or not. Like Joel Embiid can catch it, turn around and shoot over the top of him and score him, score on him. So, you know, from, from the standpoint that you just gave with like Kevin Durant, a lot of people don't like professional sports, NBA, you know, football, whatever, because they think that it's just this one-on-one, but that one can create their own advantage. If, if Messi is going against somebody who's significantly weaker than him, he's not going to pass it to an open teammate when he can himself create a one-on-one move that creates an advantage that then he can go score. And so it, it's more about educating players like this is how we create advantages and helping them understand like you have the ability to create this kind of advantage. Your teammate has the advantage, the ability to create this kind of advantage because of his size or because of his ball handling skills or because of the fact that he can shoot it at such a high. <clears throat> and that's where 
coaches have for decades, like getting players to buy into their roles. Okay, so how do we define those roles? I think it extends beyond like you're a good shooter, you're not a good shooter. You're big, you're not. It really is communicating to them. You have the ability to create this kind of advantage because of the these particular skill sets that you have. And once I can help them see because of these skill sets, you have the ability to do this within our offense, they more likely then buy into those roles because it is clearly defined for them. This is how I can personally achieve success within our offense. And because I can personally do this, I don't have to try to do what this other player does because he has his own unique set of skills that allow him to create advantages as well. And that's where sometimes the conversations with my players, they think I'm good at basketball. Why don't you play me? Or, and it's not as a coach, it's not about like, usually it's not about you're good and you're not, especially at the college level where you have higher, higher skilled players and, and the, the gap between the best and the worst should hopefully be, be closer. <clears throat> it really is helping them understand for me in basketball, how do the five guys on the floor best fit together or who can I put on the floor within that five? And we do a lot of tracking, like how does this group of five do together? Um, how, how do, you know, when these three guys play together, it goes great. When these two guys are on the floor at the same time, our offense is terrible. And that's where for me as a coach, I have to pay attention to those things to make sure that I'm putting players in a, in a successful, in a potential opportunity for them to have the highest level of success. So um, I probably went about that a really long ways, but hopefully that kind of answers your question. Nah, that's all good. The next question around that is how do you help the the individuals have a level of self-awareness of what their advantages are in comparison to the other team because again you can talk about as you mentioned there you're kind of starting five or this five or these two bigs together etc but there also will be an element of what the other team do will naturally affect how we can or can't play or where we do or don't have success if you go and play you know a load of people that look like Shaq you might struggle um maybe with some of the, sh the shorter stuff with the short players on the outside but you're probably going to be pretty good at rebounding and, and dunking all that type of stuff free throw percentage wouldn't be great and um but how do you get them to have a level of self-awareness both when they're on the court but also when they're watching film to say okay this is where I think and this is who I think could get an advantage against their opponent and here's why yeah, I don't know if this is the order in which I want to present it, but just kind of thinking about some of the things that we use. <clears throat> this is why, you know, analytics serves a really big, big part in our in our program. And we focus a lot on the four factors. So, you know, how your effective field goal percentage, um, your free throw percentage, your defensive rebounding percentage and your turnover percentage. Like, how do you do in those four categories? Um, how do your skill sets allow you to have success in those four categories? Um, and, and then based off of those four things, then obviously there's a lot of like sub skills and things that help you in becoming a great shooter or a great rebounder or a great free throw shooter, or, um, somebody who makes good decisions and doesn't turn the ball over or turnovers can be more than decision making. It could be like it could be skill skill level. So, <clears throat> you know, how do you do personally within those different categories? And then answering your question about like, you know, from one night to the next, this is why. And this really shapes like what we do as far as our, our practices and our games and everything. Um, 
you know, one night you are playing one style or one person, especially the college level, it, it could potentially be very dramatic from one night or one game to the next, who and or what you're playing at. Um, in, in our league, we don't really play in a league. It would be hard to explain. I won't waste the time on the podcast. But, you know, we could very easily one night be playing a Division One team and then the next night be playing a school that, you know, runs up and down the floor at, at a very different level, shoots a ton of threes. You know, it, it changes from game to game. And coaches for a long time have said, like, we just need game experience to get better. And I think all of us understand that. But what that has done for us very practically is we try to do a lot of playing in our practices, whether that is early on, it's a lot of two on two and three on three. The three on three continues throughout the course of the season. But then a lot of four on four, five on five. And I don't necessarily mean like 10 minutes on the clock, play five on five. I'm talking about like sometimes three possessions or um, there's some other things that we do with with that. But like getting game reps so that they can get a lot of things in their brains about like what this looks like. What does it look like when I'm playing against somebody this big? What does it look like when I'm playing against somebody smaller? What does this look like? And then being self-aware to these are the things that I can do to have success against this type of player. I think of one guy last year who, you know, he, he thought, and this is part of coaching, Understand, coaches, that like your players come to practice or come to your team with a set of expectations as to how they're going to contribute to your team. And those could very be very different from what you as a coach have in your mind as being what they're going to do or what they need to do in order to contribute to your team. Um, for one kid that may think like, I'm coming here to be a shooter. To them, that may look like every time I touch the ball, I'm shooting it because I can shoot it. And for you, that may be like, no, I need you to make open shots, but only in these type of scenarios. Or you need to look for this because you're playing with four other players or with another player who really thrives if this happens. And you need to be able to recognize that. And instead of you just gunning a three-point attempt, you need to throw it to that post player who's seven foot and better than everybody else. Like... And so, again, it goes back to like helping them understand what their role is in relationship to the team itself and how can their unique set of skills contribute to the overall team's goals and then allow us to have success as a as a group. Yeah, I think it's really nice. It's a good opportunity for us to come on, I guess, to prep this design a little bit as well. And um, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, you've got a lot of stuff going on. And one of the things I noticed on your social media page was that you create a lot of content um, and sessions around things like Dr. Dish Basketball, where they do a lot of stuff where people can then go and practice wherever they live, be that in a court or home or outside court or whatever. So I guess from an individual development standpoint, what kind of is your hit list if you're trying to help someone um, develop a skill or the technique or something you think actually for these young people to be practicing is more useful than taking a thousand free throws or whatever it might be. What's your kind of hit list to ensure they're getting good quality sessions um, delivered for themselves? Yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the main reasons with the with the Dr. Dish and the partnership that I have with them is shooting. I mean, everybody will tell you in this day and age, modern basketball, like shooting, if you can shoot, shooting is the, the skill of shooting is a, a premium. Like if you can shoot, you'll probably have at least a chance um, to be able to play at the level that, that you want to play at. Um, and so we do a ton of shooting in our practices. 
and we'll do a lot of like on air shooting. We do do some shooting with, with a defender coming out at you, but um, a lot of it has to do with just getting up a lot of reps in a short amount of time. Um, and having our players do that, we, we require them to do that on their own, a certain amount of shots a week. And then we also do it in practice. If we have a two hour practice, we will probably for at least 20 minutes have a devoted time just to shooting. Um, so that would probably be my, one of my top, top skills. Everybody's going to think dribble pass as well. And, and yes, um, historically basketball coaches, especially at younger levels have done passing probably not to the real advantage of, of their players. We stand in lines and we pass back to back and forth to each other, or we, um, we get fancy and combine two skills. We defensive slide while we're passing back and forth to each other down the floor. But that doesn't happen. That doesn't have direct game transfer. I'm not saying that's terrible. I'm saying like there's a better way, I think, you know, being able to pass with the defender. So I know when to pass, where to pass. If his hands are here, then I pass around him. Uh, anytime you move the move um, with the ball, you obviously have to dribble. So like what does dribbling look like with a defender? And uh, all of those go into why we why we practice a lot with with you know, with the defender, um, the most important, arguably the most important, the decision-making piece, you know, being able to know when to dribble, where to dribble based off of how my defender closes out at me, knowing where to pass, like I mentioned before, based off of where a help defender comes from, or if a teammate is open, or if a post defender is denying my, my entry pass on the high side or on the low side, or um, when to shoot. You know, decision making, I think, by more and more coaches now is being thought of as a skill. <clears throat> and if it's a skill, then we need to train it. And so your original question about practice and what that looks like, there is a lot of introduction of a idea and relationship. Like we show them how it relates to the whole. And then we will typically play early on. It's like I said, one on one or two on two, but <clears throat> we'll typically play a three on three add constraints to it, whether that's constraining size of court or what needs to happen within the possession, whether that's a, like you have to have a post feed or it has to start with this or um, you have to have it touch three sides or whatever. Uh, you know, we play very, very quickly and have started, started with more three-on-three three earlier and earlier, and it has led to faster comprehension and faster um, transfer to the games because they they understand the the actual game context <clears throat> to the concepts and to the skills that we're teaching them early on in the year perfect so looking at it from an individual perspective kind of at the start of that that segment that you mentioned there um you said it kind of, kind of the high repetition stuff so i'm not going to get you to do a three-pointer because i think that's boring and uh, everyone goes around that but if you look at someone maybe for like a fade away someone like demar Derozan currently who's you know very good in that space probably one of the better players in the current generation um within that how would you go around an individual say it's an individual session that you're providing for a player that's going to go home for two months and you want them to work on this particular area how would you set up a, a you know an individual session for this person to develop that skill? One of the advantages that we have at the college level is that versus like high school level, a lot of times here in the U.S., <clears throat> you get like an hour and a half or two hours at the high school level, and that's really about the only time that you see the kids and that you interact with them. 
here at the college level, I will potentially have one or two small group workouts, whether that's one, you know, me, me and them one-on-one working together or, you know, me working with two players. Um, and that's where I can really focus on like individual skill development and probably more so of like what coaches have thought of, whether that's footwork is a really big part of, of things. <clears throat> um, you know, you talked about shooting form for, Know, either a, a kind of a shot that you're fading away or evading a defender, um, you know, finishing around the basket. What does that look like? Different types of finishing moves. So we will do a lot of like on air, slow it down. This is the footwork. <clears throat> this is the ball positioning. This is the movement. This is the, you know, whatever. Um, but then, like I said, we'll, we'll quickly get it to a defender. And that doesn't necessarily mean like defense and offense are going 100 hundred percent full speed. Um, but just introducing somebody standing there playing defense or whatever. So then they can quickly again, put it into like a game context. So if it is a shooting situation, I will work with them on, you know, their footwork into the position, um, the catch where their eyes, again, vision is a big, big, important part of it. So like eyes and seeing where a defender is that will determine the type of shot that I need to take. And then where I need to transfer eyes for the shot itself, um, body positioning in the air, you know, common problem a lot of times shooting wise is what players are doing, especially if it's off the move. Is there an over rotation? Is there not enough getting a, an arm in line with the basket to, to create a, a situation where there are a few shooting errors, um, you know, follow through that kind of thing all the things that coaches have taught for years you know beef balance elbow eyes follow through or whatever acronym their favorite their favorite acronym is but like all of those are still done during skill sessions i'm just saying there is a faster transition into game context so that they can see this is how how it fits in i was talking with somebody just the other day about this but i think one of the most common phrases that i've heard from coaches is something goes wrong in a game or something goes wrong in a scrimmage and it's right after a session where we just worked on whatever that is. And the question by the coach is, we just worked on that. Why, why did you do that or something to that extent? And what you are saying is there is not a transfer. You didn't transfer as the player. You didn't transfer from the session, the skill session that we just had <clears throat> to the game context. And I would challenge coaches by saying that's probably on you and not on them. And it's not that you did it wrong. It's just that they need more practice. They may need more feedback. They may need more reinforcement. They just may need more reps. Um, but that transfer isn't there yet. That's what you need to go back and practice a little bit more. I'm just going to loop back to the eyes bit that you mentioned there, which I was, thought was really interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of work in football. It's called scanning quite a lot. Um, for you guys, what does that actually look like? You know, maybe in that post space where you're going to have people around you and it probably is quite chaotic. Um, when are you trying to take on information regarding your opponent? When are you focusing where the ball is? Where are you, when are you focusing towards the target? What does that look like, I guess, on a very generic scale um, for, for people in that space? Yeah, I mean, it's dependent on like what, what you just described, like wh who is who am I talking to? What position are they playing? What should they be looking for? Uh, probably some have heard with the research I've heard like of the quiet eye. Uh, it's the football quarterback who when the ball is hiked knows exactly where to look and is not deterred by 
the 300 pound lineman that might be coming at him to the left or to the right. Um, he can pick up which linebacker matters and which one may not for the route that he's chosen or for the routes that his wide receivers are running. What what do I need to pay attention to? And for me as a basketball coach, it's that freshman, his first year, where I can tell there is nothing quiet about that eye or more importantly about that brain that's connected to that eye because he's trying to bring in so many different stimuli he's distracted by so many different stimuli that he doesn't know what matters and what doesn't. So in your example of the post player, you know, before the catch, I should be both looking at my teammate on the perimeter who has the ball, but I should also be using my peripheral vision to see where my defender is. Um, you talk about like uh, factors that, that would depend, that would be, would factor into, you know, even am I going to be able to catch it? Well, it goes more to, to things than just your eye like where do i feel my defender is my defender on the low side is the defender on the high side is the defender playing me square in the back do i not feel a defender at all that could clue me in as to where the defender might be or what he's going to try to do next <clears throat> and then based off of those factors will determine what post up move i use or what move i know i'm going to move i'm going to use on the catch for instance if i have the defender on the high side i'm going to make sure that i'm xing big and wide holding off you know hopefully you've been in the weight room and you can hold me hold the defender off on the high side but i'm looking to receive the ball here on my opposite hand so on the catch if the defender's on the high side i know that i could potentially catch leg whip drop step and score if the defender's in the center of my back on the catch, I'm probably going to need to turn so that my butt's to the baseline. I'm going to need to get my front shoulder there into his chest, and then I'm going to either have to back him down, or once I feel him, then I sp spin off of him. And all of that takes a lot of time and a lot of work and individual sessions, And but that doesn't come unless I have a defender. And that's why I say throwing in a defender at least is the least you can do. <clears throat> Otherwise, we're memorizing or just running through all these random reps. I can say to them, all right, on the catch, now drop step. All right, on the ca catch, go to the middle. All right, on the catch, spin, move, baseline, and reverse. All right, on the catch, face up and shoot. But what determines when I use those skills? What determines when I face up? What determines when I spin? What determines? The defender determines all of that. And so that's why we go as quickly as we can to at least getting a pad on the, on somebody. That way they can start feeling, um, looking, and seeing, and then choosing the appropriate finishing move so that then they can hopefully have success around the basket. And the post probably fascinates me more than more than most areas, just because I think the the crossover between a defender and striker in football is quite big and I was a defender so I, I like the idea of body contact and whatnot so how do you get individuals to begin to understand the different ways that they can use and utilize their body so um, correct me if I'm wrong on this but I'd imagine if you're trying to spin baseline from maybe a higher position that ability to plant your foot kind of be on the defender and then use your hip to kind of keep them out of the way and then be able to use your arm is probably quite a big important part of that and I imagine for someone who's never done it like I've never done it before my footwork's probably going to be all over the place and like the, the feeling of the hip of not knowing and making it obvious and stuff so how do you actually get them to understand one what the steps are and two, maybe if they're having success why they're having success if it's a foot placement or if they're not having success of 
okay, you're good for three quarters of it, but actually you're not whipping your hip round quick enough, which is allowing him to slide back across. How do you get them to identify that? Is, is that through play, like you mentioned earlier? Yeah, if I mean, for a sport like basketball, for sure, um, through play, but slowing it down, I think. Um, slowing it down and then also allowing them to see it as well. Um, I think we a, ignore the fact sometimes that not everyone learns the same kind of way. So um, I had, <clears throat> you know, I have some players that I can literally just talk them through it, have them do it one time, and we're good to go. Um, I remember coaching one player early on where he was supposed to screen and then pivot a certain way in order to keep a defender from getting around him, and he literally kept pivoting the opposite direction. And I went up to him three times in a row and was, no, the other direction, no, the other direction, no, the other direction. And finally, on the last time, I went up to him and grabbed his shoulders to help him, not in anger or anything, but I grabbed him with by his shoulders, and he was literally pushing against me the same way that he was wanting to go but i fought him a little bit and kind of twisted him the other way and it was like a light bulb went off like oh, okay i got it and not a dumb player it's just that like he's more of that kinesthetic tactile type learner that needs to be able to feel the right way to do it and i think that's where as a teacher the great teachers will understand that people learn different ways but oftentimes they learn the best if they if you get to them the way that they learn but also like use those other techniques as well so as i'm talking it through to them i'm also showing it to them or i'm also sometimes i'll have them watch me do it and then we'll have them come on and now i'll do it as a defender i'll be kind of like that dummy defender so that they can feel me and as i come off they're feeling how it feels like, and then we'll start to speed it up to game reps or whatever. And, you know, I think that's a that's an important point for coaches is that you live in this world where you have 15, 20, 30, 40, whatever years of experience, and you've seen the way that it's supposed to go, and you know the way. But for a younger player, like, they don't have that bank of, like, they understand what it even looks like or the concept that it should be. And... Um, and so if you can, you can kind of go back to thinking about like, I was there once, I need to slow things down and help them and understand that even not every player kind of learns as fast or whatever. And, um, you know, being able to slow things down and understanding that each person's kind of running their own journey. Um, but whether that means slowing it down, showing them a different way, understanding that we're all different in how we learn and the way in which we learn. And uh, that should guide us as teachers then in how we communicate to our players. Now, I'm not suggesting the number of staff when I say this. So, um, but yeah, bear with me on it. But do you think that's where maybe a crossover of what they do in the NFL would be useful? So um, they obviously have position coaches and about five of them from my understanding, they have quality control positional coaches, all that type of stuff. And um, I can just imagine if you've got someone that maybe is an expert in that post game or attacking post game. I know there was a story of Tim Duncan a few years ago, kind of during the game, correcting his opponent, saying, no, you didn't do this, which is why I was able to do it. And it, the opponent said, I did it the next time scored. And he went much better, which during the game is a bit crazy. But I'd imagine if you've got someone who is a specialist in that space or has you know, a really good in-depth knowledge from either playing or really focusing on that area. If you had that across the board, you're probably going to pick up little techniques and little skills that 
maybe you as a head coach or an assistant coach, you'd be spread too thin to be able to go in and talk about that specific technique. So do you think that's maybe where coaching in the future in those big programs could get to where you have people that are really specialized at that particular skill and working with people in that area? Professional sports, for sure. Colleges here in the U.S. are, are doing a better job with that. I think that's why you're seeing like a sports psychologist on the staff or at least available to the athletes. And you're seeing strength and conditioning that have a basketball-specific um, knowledge coming and being part of. I, I think of a school here in town that um, I know their program pretty well, and I, I, I've talked to and interviewed like their strength and conditioning coach, and I've gone and observed him. Um, it's one thing to know how to lift weights. It's another thing to know how to train somebody to have explosive movements to be able to rebound a basketball or to be able to stay in front of a defender as they move. And um, I think that that's where, going all the way back to our, I think it's on you as a coach, this may sound a little bit intimidating, but the more I can be a continual learner in body mechanics, and sports psychology, you're going to be able to be more prepared for the kinds of things that you just described that will allow your players to tie together the mental, the physical, the movement. Um, and I think will then allow them to be able to have more success than just teaching them how to play basketball. I, I think that's where a lot of us are seeing like, this isn't just about running the best play or working the hardest. Like there's a lot of things that go into creating a, a great basketball player and creating a great basketball team. And the more equipped you are, the more equipped your staff is to handle those kinds of things. I think the more success you're going to see in developing players rather than just developing or just creating championship teams. Perfect. And I've got one last question for you, which is who is the most impressive player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Oh, um, I've had I've been privileged, especially these last several years, to get connected with a lot just through the podcast. You know, there's a couple that I think of. I, you know, I think of um, somebody like Brian McCormick is one that with basketball that he has been kind of like forefront in player training, development, decision making. Um, I saw a tweet this morning that reminded me like fake fundamentals, like the defensive slides or. Um, three-man weave, that kind of thing, like just exposing like things that actually matter to sports and or to basketball and things that may not. Um, I, somebody like uh, Doug Novak has been really influential in, in helping me teach the game and that kind of thing. So I think probably just people who have helped make me, me better teachers, and there's a list of a lot of others as well, but um, I'm partial to that because I am a teacher and, and that's, what I, that's what I do for a living. And so I'm always trying to find better ways to, to better teach, um, uh, not just knowledge, but like we've been talking about, like real world application in our context, like this, what the, what can we do to help players become better prepared for, for games and become better, uh, both individually and as a team. So probably those two, but there's probably more. Perfect. Listen, Tony, really appreciate your time. I think a fascinating conversation into, you know, the coaching world and dynamics and whatnot, and uh, hopefully can catch up with you again soon. I appreciate it, Michael.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.